0: better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to and we are live. Welcome to episode 3289 of the Survival Podcast. I'm not sure how it happened, but we ended up on a Wednesday without a guest booking. Uh, on that note, I do need to get the guest form back on the website. We had closed it down so that we don't get booked too far out into the future because that results in scheduling conflicts and stuff like that. And we generally get booked out about two, two and a half months, and then we shut it down. When we get close to catching up, we bring it back open again. So either today or tomorrow, the guest form will reappear like magic at the thesurvivalpodcast.com. And if you think you'd be a good guest to come on the show, Fill it out. That is your pitch. If you don't fill it out completely, I will delete your application. That's what will happen. And I will throw it away and I will forget about it within two seconds after it comes in. So make sure you actually complete the full form. Sometimes people don't want to put in the uh, sample questions. That's your pitch to me. Just so you know. And if you know somebody you think would be a good guest, tell them about it. And ask them to fill it out, explain the rules to them, too. Do not fill it out for them. That has happened once or twice, and it's created conflict as the uh, party that uh, was contacted didn't know anything about it, and we didn't know that somebody did it for them, that type of thing. So never fill out the form for somebody unless you are their duly appointed representative. What are we going to talk about today? I thought today was time for a throwback after I fubbed up a little bit yesterday with all the screen capture stuff. Uh, I decided that today I would rely as little on it as possible and just do an old school episode where we talk to you about a subject. And this is about as old school survival podcast as it gets. The concept of from home to homestead. This is actually one of the foundational blocks that the entire podcast community and all the subcommunities around TSP was built on. The first time I talked about this subject was July 22nd, 2008. That's a bit go. And not much has really changed. with it. But I did think it was time for a new discussion on it. And 15 years of homesteading makes a man a little bit wiser about the subject of homesteading, including things like biting off more than you can chew. So I thought we would dig into this again today. In fact, this topic took off so hard that there is a, a guy named Johnny Max, home brewer type guy. He had a little microbrewery. I don't know if he still has a little nano brewery down in the Houston area. But his wife, he referred to her as the Queen, Johnny Max and the Queen. They actually made a podcast called Home to Homestead and ran that for a number of years. And it came straight out of here. So that's how much this topic resonated back in, as Joe is saying, the Jetta days. It was the Jetta days. For those that are new, what what Joe's talking about there is when I started this show, I used to drive a little 2006.5 Jetta Diesel TDI, not because it's what I could afford, but because I drove about 60 miles one way to my office every day, so I looked for the most fuel-efficient car I could get. And with uh, a Jetta Diesel t- TDI, I got over 40 miles to the gallon. So I, I grabbed that little car uh, back then and got in it in July 20th, to J- June 20th, 2008. Did the first episode. Of TSP so if you've been around that long we're going back to those days did the show for 18 months back then from June of 08 to the end of December of 09 and then took the show full time anyway with that let's go ahead and remind you guys about our sponsors today Uh, I've got two things for you today that you want to you want to get on pretty quick the first one when I say pretty quick, I mean like, well, uh, now uh, Paul Wheaton's Kickstarter, the Low Tech Labs Kickstarter, which came right out of his Permaculture Jamboree. All these cool projects, how-tos, experts doing them, showing you how to do it. Uh, this thing has funded 800% of the goal. That's because it's that awesome. Paul's just added some new kicks, uh, new stretch goals to it. If you support this Kickstarter at $100, you don't just get all the stuff promised at $100. You get about $500 worth of additional stuff. That's pretty cool, and you can read the write-up. There is a link in the video notes below to where you can read the write-up on exactly what that stuff is. But I'll tell you what, guys. Um, I'm excited to get my hands on this stuff, and I really think you should check it out because if you don't, Uh, soon, then whatever you're going to pay for it, it's going to be more than you would pay for it right now. The other one, you got a little bit more time to uh, act on. This is for May, and uh, I will be at the Exit and Build Lamb Lamb Summit in Bastrop, Texas, hosted by John Bush. Uh, I have always enjoyed uh, presenting at John's uh, events. It's easy for me to do because he's only about three hours away. So I try to say yes whenever he asks. The event is taking place the 18th through the 22nd of May. And uh, the, the, uh, the conference stuff is the 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st. The 18th and 22nd involve offsite farm tours. And so you can come to all or, you know, just the middle or whatever you want, but I'll be there. Uh, Nicole Sauce will be there, Derek Bros. Uh, Rebecca Powers, Michael Reynolds, Jeff Lawton will be presenting doing it remotely, but there will be a two-hour full-on workshop on permaculture from Jeff Lawton, probably the best permaculturist in the world right now, and one of my personal mentors and good friends. Come down, hang out, the Exit and Build Land Summit 3. Uh, it is a fantastic venue. It is a very cool town. There's lots of cool stuff to do after hours. Uh, there's some really great restaurants. I always make myself available at least a night or two at events like these where I go somewhere and you can come hang out with me. I usually take a night or two also where I don't do that. Uh, So if you want to get some good quality time with myself, other TSPers and cool folks outside of our community, come on down to this. Don't miss it. Link in the video notes below with that. Let's go ahead and get on into the main topic today. Um, Again, this goes back to the very, very early days of the Survival Podcast. I actually remember the day that I decided to do this subject. I had been doing the show for about a month. And what I would do is I would think about it throughout my day at my office. And I would come up with a topic, and I would think about the topic on the ride home. And I would often listen to the show I did that morning at the same time. And I did that to get better at podcasting. I would listen to it and go, okay, you're, you've been speaking your whole life and you're using a placeholder. Why are you using a placeholder? And I was like, well, you're using a placeholder because you have no audience. You're, you're talking to an imaginary thing. You're attacking, talking to empty space, to a little recorder, so you don't have feedback from the audience. And I, I would try to get myself better. I'm trying to get the... There we go. Get the camera to focus. Um, and as I was driving home, listening to that, the episode prior to that, or maybe one day before I had said something about our grandparents and I started thinking about specifically my dad's side of the family, my grandfather, Spirko, my grandmother, Spirko, And, and these guys were first generation Americans, right? Their, their parents came here from Ukraine Uh, about the uh, just before the turn of the last century, long, long time ago. And they had about a quarter acre garden. I worked in it all the time. We hunted and we fished for food. It wasn't just a hobby or a pastime. There was a hobby and pastime to it. There was a community to it. But it was really about if you put a couple deer in the freezer, you had more meat for the winter. That's really what it was about. We did and we did all the hunting, small game big game, everything. If there was a season where you could legally go out and take game, we did that. And that house had been paid off. I don't remember exactly the date, but it would have been sometime in the 60s, in the early 60s, that they had paid off the house. I believe it was something around $1,400 was the mortgage they took out At the beginning or somewhere in the early stages of the Great Depression, my great-grandfather on my grandmother's side sold the house to my grandfather when they decided to start a family. And uh, shortly thereafter, it was toward the end of the Depression, I guess, because my grandfather was drafted into the Navy uh, and went back home. And I remember, it would have been the 80s, it would have been about 86, that in the mail came a letter and the letter was from the county and it said, this is your new property tax bill. And it was like $288 a year for the property taxes on this house that hadn't had a payment on it for over 20 years. And my grandfather, I thought he was going to get liquored up on whiskey, grab the 35 Remington lever gun, go, go over to Plottsville to the County seat and shoot the place up. He was matter than I have ever seen him in my life. And it was because he was having to pay for his own property. Now think about the amount of money and how much money a month this nets out to. And uh, as much as I hate property tax, I think it's one of the more insidious taxes. I think income and property tax are both, They're they're all theft, but those two are insidious because they are taxing productivity. If you tax sales, that's one thing. When you're taxing somebody's property, or their income you're directly taxing productivity and but i but i understood listening to him that this was really about the fact that he had worked so hard so that his home was a thing that produced for him he was very proud that he had not had to pay a mortgage payment on it forever He was very proud of his electric bill that was ridiculously cheap because they didn't have air conditioning and the heat was all done with radiators and coal um, from a coal furnace. So, I mean, the electric bill in that place back then was probably less than $30 a month or something. And now here was this expense against his greatest asset. And he didn't use terms like asset. This is a dude, you know, he grew up through the Great Depression, mining coal, served in the Navy in the war, came back, was so broken down from both things that he really couldn't mind for much longer, took up a job as a trade as a carpenter, and worked until he retired as a carpenter. And he just felt that this devalued what he had. And what I got from that wasn't like, This whole thing where you don't really own your land because you have to rent it from the state because you you can play that stupid game if you want. and, And frankly, most people that say that you don't own any property and you're using it as an excuse because if you are not paying your property tax, you're paying somebody like my property tax as a landlord. But what it made me realize is how much he valued the property. So in this time that I used to give myself from one day to the next thinking about a thing. The concept of home to homestead came to me because I realized that that little piece of property, which was right about an acre, provided so much directly and indirectly. And it provided it in three ways. It provided it as we grew food. We had a little bit of small livestock, et cetera. Um, And so we had the direct production, very low cost to maintain with that. Then we had the hunting and gathering, going up into the hills, finding the blueberries, the wild strawberries, the blackberries, like all of that stuff, the mushroom foraging we did specifically in the fall for like Ramshead, a.k.a. the bataki mushroom. You know, as a kid, I'm eating these gourmet mushrooms. I had no idea how expensive they really were. And then the third way was the community interaction. And this little place that had been built in the 1800s, acquired by my grandfather in the 1930s, in the 1980s was still overproducing any frontside cost into it. And honest to God, the property taxes were nothing to get really upset over, but I understand what my grandfather did. And so that came into my head. And what I realized, even all the way back then in 08, tying into um, rich, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki's first book, that most people put down their house as an asset, but it's not. It's a liability and not no property tax because the house tends to consume more than it produces. It consumes in- income directly, but it also tends to consume income indirectly. Most people, they never fulfill the dream my grandfather fulfilled in the sixties. They never pay for the house they either get the mortgage really low and then rates are in the right place or whatever. And they refinance the house, take a bunch more money. i start building onto it or buy shit or go on vacation or whatever, or they sell it and they upgrade to a new house and they move eight, nine, 10 times in their life. My grandfather got that house as a very young man and he died there. And that's just something we've lost. And that's where, we get on the path to do this right. And for some of us that are older and, you know, we have recently bought a home, we may never get there, but we might want to teach our kids this mindset. That maybe buying a house and selling it and using that as, a, as a, a, le- a lever up to a better piece of property, maybe that's not a bad idea, but how many times are we going to do that? This whole starter home. What starter home meant to that generation was you bought a house And whatever it didn't give you, you added on to it. And for that, you needed a little bit of land and in the good bones of the house. And no one thought about it back then. But what you need today is a place where if you want to put an addition on or if you want to put in a second building or something, you can do it without having to go beg and plead. Please, sir. Please. If it pleases the crown. May I build a building on my own property? Right. Like as long as you have that then you can do whatever you want with what you have. And that's what made it an asset. Whereas today, you have this huge amount of money going into it. Huge amount of tax. I mean, how many of you out there, as much as you hate tax, if you could pay under $300 in property tax a year, you'd be pretty okay with it, right? You'd be like, you know, whatever. You might grumble, but you'd write a check once a year and go, bye-bye, get out of here. Um, and then we add all the stuff. And then we're not even content to be there. I I can think of my grandfather, and I can't think of a place he was happier than sitting on the glider, which is like a bench that, instead of rocks, it kind of slides back and forth on tracks. Sitting out there, listening to his crappy polka music, drinking a yingling, watching the dog roll around in the dirt under the tree, watching his garden grow, watching the rabbits hop through the clover and watching people run up and down the road in their cars or whatever, but always slow down, stick their hand out the window and wave and go, hi, Biff. That made his, like, that was everything to him. He was totally content there, and I don't know why. Um, And then I want to think about how that relates to the first homesteaders that came to, you know, quote, quote, unquote, the new world. So the new world I, some people get really upset about that terminal. I'm not going to deal with anybody's triggered bullshit today, but what I mean by that is when we came here, it was all new to us, and the initial settlers, I guess you could call them homesteaders, but they really they were they were homesteaders by the fact that they there was nothing here, so you had to make do with what you had or you died. There wasn't a lot of resupply coming, but far quicker than people I think in their heads realize. The colonies expanded into towns and the first cities and what have you, and you ended up with a generation of people who were pretty comfortable by just staying in these towns and cities. And everybody had little farms and stuff like that, but they didn't really go out and homestead unless they were adventurous. The other thing there's people that, that came all the way from another another continent, and then they get here. And, like, you can get a little apartment in Philadelphia or Wilmington or wherever, and, you know, Boston or just outside, and there's people and there's supplies and all. And yet some of these people said, you know what? I'm going to head west. And long before the glory days of that that we think about, like, after the Civil War and the Plains Indians between the 1850s and 1900, long before that, that western settlement began. And it's before the railroads and stuff like that. And these folks ventured out squared off a piece of land somewhere, cleared it, and turned it into something. And you have to ask yourself, what would do this? What would make a person move all the way here, take some job in a bar or whatever, save their money, scrape, get enough money to where they can make a go of it, pack everything up and leave again and go nowhere and turn nowhere into somewhere? And it's because at the time, something we take for granted today was not possible in most of the world, and that is the actual ownership of land. And so they came here with that mindset. They valued the ownership of land because they came from a place where you had to be a lord or a duke or some shit like that to actually own land anything else. You were a tenant farmer. And in their minds, if I had this thing in this place and I own the land, and I own the productivity of land. I might do well and I might do poorly, but it's all in my destiny and I become the lord of the land. And it brought people here. It's not our freedoms. It's not our flag. It's not whatever bullshit, rah-rah slogan that the media tells you that brought people here. It was the, this, this idea that they could own something that they simply could not own anywhere else in the world that they could get to. And so they started settling to the West. And so the key shift for us is to get ourselves in the mindset of, you know, two generations, three generations back, depending, maybe four, depending on how old you are, plus going back seven, eight, nine, ten generations, somewhere way back and think about those people and what they saw, a piece of property and a house. And if I had to go to a place and dig a pit and take my brother with me, And we built two houses eventually, but we lived in one together with our wives and our kids. And we built a pit, and we had a a rip saw, and we took turns in the pit, milling boards out of logs, so be it, because when we're done, we are going to have something that we own that produces for us. And so the the first step in this home-to-homestead isn't I go get chickens. It isn't I put a garden in. All of those are things you do after the first step. The first step is a mental determination, a willful intent. I want to make my home into a producer from a consumer. I don't want my home consuming my time and my money. I want it providing me time and saving me money and producing things that would cost me money if it didn't produce it for me. And that's the big switch. And so we now look at homes as something we own. But in most for most Americans, homes own them. They spend eight hours a day working, but they spend two hours a day commuting. That's 10. So right there, you're down to 12 hours a day that exists. Say you sleep eight. You're only home awake and conscious for four hours a day during the work week. And yet most people are spending somewhere between 20 and 35 percent of their income just on the direct cost of their home taxes, taxes, insurance, principal, and interest. Then add electric bills, everything else. People are spending as much as half their income on a box with a roof over it that they spend four hours a day conscious in. Where, like I said, what is my grandfather's recreation? Being on the porch watching his garden grow. Being on the porch watching the first snowfall and having community interaction at the same time. And no one said, hey, you know what we should do? We should get together and create a community They just had one because people just live this way. And it, it's what like you if you ha- if you, it, it when I talk like this today, people are like, wow, yeah, he's making a good point. If I had talked like this, if I had had the intellectual capacity to talk like this when I was 14, they would have said, kid, you're very well spoken. But it just don't No shit. Everybody knows this. That's how much we've lost in what, 30 years, 35 years. We've lost that much in, in, in three and a half decades. And this is the way, a mindset into bringing it back. So I think you have to start out by buying right. I can't tell you how many people that I've known over the years. It's just friends and acquaintances and you know business associates who have bought property that going into it, I'm like, oh, this is going to be bad. This is going to be bad because they would always say, well, if I decide I don't want the house, I can always sell it for more than I paid for it. Uh, and there's been quite a few Real estate booms over those years, and most people have said shit like that, bought near the top of the real estate market. So you have to buy very smart. I've done whole episodes, so I'm not going to dig deep into it today about how to buy a house, but it's the reverse of how to sell a house. So when you buy a house, you make it look 1% better than everything on the market. When you buy a house, you're looking for the house that is fundamentally sound, but shows worse by 1% of everything on the market. You're looking for the one that just shows poorly, but it's in good shape. Now recently, real estate got so hot, there was a hole in that theory. People were buying houses without looking at them. And if you can avoid buying a house when people are that berserk crazy, then you avoid buying a house when people are that berserk crazy. Or you get very creative on how you buy it. But we have got to start out by buying a house And and the number one thing to do is whatever the bank says you can spend, take about twenty five percent off of that and make it your budget. And you might want to take thirty off so that you have a five percent overage when you find something that's just a little bit over. But you need to be looking in that range of twenty to thirty percent less at least than what the bank tells you you can have. And if the bank doesn't tell you you can have enough if you do that, then what you have to do is work your ass off and bring up the down payment to where it does work. Because there's no way that your home can ever be a producer if you don't have enough breathing room to figure out how to turn it into one. If all you like if you're looking at buying a house, I've seen people do this. Well, if I take a couple hours of overtime a week, then we can afford it. So, no, you can't afford it right there i know you can't afford it because you don't know you'll always be able to get that overtime right so you want to make sure you go in at a very serviceable load of debt of all debt though i will say this the best debt is against an appreciating asset that's that's the best debt as long as we don't buy when the market is stupid hot Real estate, by and large, is an appreciating asset. So I don't hate real property debt. I have real property debt right here. And I look at it once in a while and go, you know, legitimately, we could write a check for half of it and not alter our retirement. And then we could knuckle down for two years and have it paid off. And I just look at the amount that we actually owe on the property and go, I'd rather have the capital than not have the debt since my debt is at an interest rate of 2.71 or something like that percent. So I, I'm i not opposed to debt on the real estate, but the debt needs to be so serviceable that it's not a concern. You're never thinking, I, I hope we can make our bills this month. And that's about balancing the entire budget. So we're going to leave that there. I just, I can't not say that. And I also want to talk about preppers they're like, I don't want a homestead. Now, if you don't want a homestead because you can't because you have an apartment or something like that, you, know, you can grow some herbs or something on the back porch or whatever, but you're not really going to homestead. I get that. If you have a house. You should if you're a prepper, you should be turning it into a homestead because you're ignoring a resource. And what prepping is about is having the resources you need for when times get tough. It is a long process to develop even a small homestead. And if you're like, well, I'll do that if things go wrong. No, you won't. No, you won't. Just establishing good fertile garden beds. I mean, four of them, four by eights, 32 square foot apiece, 128 square foot of garden. That takes a couple seasons to really establish high quality stuff. And you're not going to have the money to do the projects the way you're going to want to do them if you wait until you're in bad times. Or you may not be able to get the materials. That's one of the things that COVID's taught us. Oh, by the way, it's it's okay y'all. You can come out now. It's safe. Covid's over. Biden Brandon signed the thing yesterday. Said it's over. Um so hopefully I won't get taken down for misinformation by telling you it's over cuz the uh, emergency ended cuz Brandon signed the uh, bill. Uh but yeah, we did learn some things from it. And one is that supply lines are more fragile than we think they are. And there could certainly be things that make it even worse than what we experienced during that. But all preppers need to be homesteaders at least a little bit. If you're not, you're not using the asset that you have and your assets probably turning into a liability. I also want to talk a little bit about why you might not want and maybe shouldn't get. A lot of land, and by and a lot of land is subjective. Three acres to some people's a lot of land. I've been told. You talk all, you talk to us like everybody's rich like you with a giant farm. I'm like, I got three acres, dude. I don't have a giant, and it's not a farm; it's a rock shelf. Right? That's huge to me. So you know, I I get that. I, there was a time in my life when I would have thought a piece of land three acres is pretty damn big. You know, and thought maybe I—I I would say at some point in my really early years, as you're you're coming up and everything's so hard, I I might have felt that maybe it was out of reach even. But it's not that big of a piece of land. It is a lot of land to take care of when you have to mow it though. It's one of the good things about living here where it doesn't rain in the summer and the grass stops growing. You don't have to mow that much, and then you got the birds out there taking care of it. But when, the three acres of mowing is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. So. Um, and you don't need that much land. So, again, my grandparents' place was about an acre, and one, part of it was like a big stripping bank, which is where they dig the dirt out for when they mine coal and stuff. So, like usable, three quarters. And we had about a quarter acre in garden. And the rest was just grass. We produced so much food, that the whole family. Ate from that garden. And when I say whole family, I don't mean the people that lived. I mean, like, my family, people that lived outside the home that were part of the family, they came over and helped it all. Like, then, every year, I had to give away food that my grandmother was just like, I'm done canning for the year. Take this away. And she would write names on little grocery bags, and I would carry them to all of the older people in the neighborhood. And I mean, I would go up to somebody's house with, like, two full grocery bags. I don't even know they make them anymore. The kinds kind she used to put... You used to uh, fold and make book covers for your school books out of guys that are old enough to remember that when we went to school with books and pencils and paper instead of tablets, right? And so like the old school, big grocery bags, I would carry like to a house, two bags. And I might do that two or three times at the end of the, the growing season and four or five houses like that out of a quarter of an acre. And of that quarter of an acre, the growing space based on the way my grandfather did things was, uh, you know, like 0. 0.125 of an acre because you had a bed and then an equal amount of grass between it for an open row and then a bed. So it wasn't intensively cultivated at that. So if I used intensive cultivation techniques, I could probably double the production of that and it was still more than we could use. And so how much land do you really need? And then this also has a lot to do with what are the natural resources around you? We produced far more calories in venison than we did in vegetables, yeah? And I mean, I produced far more calories in squirrels sitting up on that stripping bank and shooting them when they came in to steal walnuts than we did calories from broccoli anyway. We picked quarts and quarts of blueberries, blackberries every year. We literally one time filled up the bed of a pickup truck level to the rails with ram's head mushrooms, and, and, and we were like, we don't need all of it, so we drove around to bars, and a bar in Pennsylvania might be as big as my office in the small towns, right? went in, laid it on the top of the bar with a scale, and sold it for10 dollars a pound. And this is the '80s. So all of that was done. All of that was done from such a small piece of land because we understood how to leverage what was around it. Yeah. And so make sure that you, you don't go too big. And we just, I just talked about this this week on Monday where someone had commented on the blog saying, Hey, we moved to the city and I want you guys to know that it can, you can wear yourself out. They'd been there about 10 years and they kind of gave up, sold and moved on somewhere else. I said it was six acres too much to take care of. We're all getting older. And part of turning your home into a producer is making it a place that you want to grow old in. And so if the systems you set up require heavy labor every day, all season long, even if you enjoy doing it now, you're not going to forever. I'm going to tell you younger guys right now, between 43 and 45, your extended warranty is going to wear out. Those days where you could go bust yourself up, go to bed totally hurting wake up in the morning, drink a cup of coffee, pop two Advil and go on with your life. Like it never happened. They will come to an end. And unlike your car, no one's going to call you and offer you a new extended warranty. It will expire and it will be gone. And then it is a downhill path. There's a lot of things we can do to stay healthy. I'm still pretty healthy. I think losing a bunch of weight over the last few years that helped working constantly. That all helps, but physically, hard labor every day is not just whether or not you can do it. Do you want to do it? I want you guys as you grow old and as I grow old to be able to be like my grandfather and sit on your porch and smile and enjoy things. And when something needs to be done, you might be like, ah, crap, something broke and have to go fix it. I don't want it to be hard. So we need smaller, actively managed areas or somebody else is doing it. If you go by a hundred acres, most of it's pasture, it's being grazed by cattle or sheep or something, and you set up a system where you can manage them and it's not a lot of work for you, great, great. Or somebody leases the land and does it, or you have tenant farmer, or whatever, that's fine. But for most people, I think a half acre is a huge piece of land to manage for intensive production. So please don't overdo it. The main reason I like a bigger piece of land is to keep people away from me. If you gave me a 100 wooded acres right now, I'd probably clear about an acre of it for active management, maybe a few other acres for some ponds and stuff, but mostly it would be four-wheeler trails and woods. And if it was raw land and I was building a house, I would try to build that house within reason as close to the middle of that sucker as possible so that no one's around me and everybody will leave me alone. That may not be you. If you want to live in town, part of a community, village, whatever, that'd be fine, too. But don't bite off more than you can chew. Or, again, it's not an asset. It's a liability because it requires effort or it goes to shit. Yeah. Um, how do we turn our homesteads into producers? What are the things we do? The most obvious one and where most people start is by growing or producing food. And I think this makes a lot of sense. Because it's something that anybody can do. Wherever you live, there is something that will grow well. There's probably some things that will grow well that will be adapted to your climate, to your pests, diseases, etc. And the better you make the land, the more resilient you make the land, the more fertile you make the land, the more that variety of stuff that will do well will grow. And it can be very easy. You know, I do things with raised beds mainly because there's no soil. <laughs> And because I have these things called ducks that run around, eat everything if they're down on their level. But, you know, where I grew up in PA with my grandfather, he would have never put in a raised bed. We never brought soil in or filled dirt in. We took a string. It was 25 feet long between two stakes. And I would stick it in the ground at the top of the bed and stick it in the ground at the bottom of the bed and take an edger which is basically just a a pole with what looks like a hole except it goes straight down, right? Use it for breaking ice too off the sidewalk. And I would put that in the ground and kind of wiggle it back and forth and follow that line all the way down. Then go four feet across, then move the line to the other side, back up to the other corner, four feet from the, and then do it that way. And then, then you had a 25 foot long by four foot area cut of any solder weeds that grew in over the winter. And I would I would double dig it, take the end out, turn it over, dirt, 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 dirt on top of it. So your sod's going up one, that old classic technique. And the first cut of sod went upside down all the way at the other end. I did that every year. You know what the cost of that was? Absolutely nothing because they didn't pay me to do it. They're like, you want to go screw off? Dig a bed today and then dig another bed. And then it, so, you know, over a couple of weeks, I would dig all the beds out like that. Sometimes my old man or my uncle would help. But that was it. There was no cost. It was simply just dig up the bed and then plant the stuff. I would do things differently. Now, I would use cover crops. I would tarp the beds. I would do mulch heavily or something. So you'd have to do that every year and effectively till every year. But it worked. It. I mean, we grew broccoli. We grew cabbage. We grew cauliflower. We grew you know green beans and yellow beans and cucumbers and dill and tomatoes and peppers and just corn and everything. Beets. I mean horseradish friggin Swiss chard lettuce is everything, and that's all we did and what that means is it is the thing anybody can do. trust me if my bro and before I moved up there as a team, my grandfather did this every year in into his sixties and early seventies he did all that work himself. I think that's why he was happy to kind of tag out and get the young kid to do it once I moved up there. And and honestly, God, somebody's making a joke here, obviously because of the, the happy face, but builder of castle says those bastards, that slavery. There were times when I would have preferred not to, but actually I enjoyed myself. And I think that this is another aspect of homesteading and having work that kids can do on a homestead. I think my work ethic today and my work ethic, ethic coming up through, You know, going from packing boxes when I first got out of the army and moved here in Texas in a warehouse to uh, being a, a top producing salesperson making 100 grand a year plus in three years has a lot to do with that shovel time. The attitude of like, this is just a thing that needs to be done. Head down, butt up and get to work. Don't look at it. When you get to the end, you'll know you're done. And it's much faster if you don't keep looking at the finish line and you just focus on the work that you have to do. So I think the homesteading pays dividends beyond the direct dividend of food production, especially when kids are involved, right? Remember, they'll grow up and leave those. So don't design the system fully based on their labor. Like that—that that was a mistake that my grandfather made. That, you know, with a grandkid, he never had to worry about that at his age. But it—it it would have run out had he—he uh, he had lived longer. Um, another way, though, is to generate income. And what I want to start adding to this that I didn't I didn't use this term back then because I didn't know the term in the very beginning when I first started talking about this is function stacking. If I'm growing food, some of the things I can do to earn income can help me grow the food and maybe the food or the activity of growing the food can help me earn money. So, I mean, a market garden is obvious for that if that's what you want to do. But it's a lot of work for the money that you return back. It's a larger operation, have enough production to get out there. But let's take a look at some of the stuff we've been talking about lately that makes the garden more productive. Vermicomposting, black soldier flies, um, and biochar, right? And composting itself and making compost tea. right? All five of those things are things that make your property more productive, but they have something you can sell as a surplus. Go on Amazon and search for black soldier fly larvae. You'll see both dead preserved larvae and live little grubs and look at how much it costs. Go look up what a bag of good quality worm castings costs. Go look at what a pound of red wigglers costs. Go look at what a pound of night crawlers costs. Go look at what really good compost tea costs. Go look at what biochar costs. So one could Absolutely set up all the systems to deal with waste streams, improve the hell out of their garden, sell the surplus and earn an income. Now, is that a walk away from your job income? Unless you get really serious about it, probably not. But this is the way homesteaders of the past thought. If I can make 200 bucks doing this thing that I'm kind of going to do anyway. Then I should make that 200 bucks, put it in my pocket and forget that it ever happened. Me, my neighbor and the fence post are aware of that 200 bucks. And then the thought was, well, how many of those 150, 200, $575 things can I do? How many of these things can I do? And the idea was the more I can do, the better. Instead of trying to grow one into this giant thing. Or I've maybe become a target or I become, or I spend all my time on it. I'm much better off if I can put 500 bucks a month in my pocket. That's just extra money. And then I can use that to pay for other improvements or other inputs that I need. And effectively, then all my production is a zero sum cost and maybe profitable. And then, like, if you start looking at how that would all pair together, and K-Bunk, I'll go ahead and answer his question for him right now. It says, Are, am I generating black soldier fly water? But I am not right now. I have a really big, like, 100-gallon Tupperware bin. I think will make a great soldier fly bin. And I have a vacation coming up next month. this month. It's only, like, 15 days away now, and I got a bunch of rewinds to do and all. So I'm going to build that component of kind of my next rollout of things after we get back. That I'm gonna set that up. But this is how I'm gonna do this. And if there's gonna be an income from it, I want my grandkids to take charge of some of this. But my plan is to build the black soldier fly bins and feed the larva to the birds and the fish. And if there's surplus, then the kids can sell that. And if the kids will get active, this is like Grandpa 101 here, right? If the kids will get active and actually start treating it like a business what I will do for them is become their guaranteed wholesale customer, right? And what I mean by that is I'm going to pay less than if they set up, you know, Tegan and Braylon's, you know, plants and fertility or whatever they set up, right? I'm going to pay less because I'm the one teaching them, mentoring them, marketing for them, and putting up all the initial front-end costs, though we're going to have a lesson in front-end costs, we're going to have a payback out of the business if they actually do it. But if they do it, I'll basically turn it over to them, let them run it, buy what I use, and then teach them how to sell what they have in excess at a higher price to the market. Right? That's my, like, homeschool hope out of this, and we'll see if they'll do it. Um, but the, pro- the progression is you you feed the waste stream to the soldier flies far more than the worms. Because worms will eat anything. Worms will eat straw. Worms will eat grass. Worms will break down fibrous material. The black soldier flies, they don't want that. Like, they want a rotten orange or an apple, or they want a dead thing off the road, or they want, like, a bunch of food scraps, or some wet dog food, or what have you. That's what they want. They'll eat coffee grinds, too, but they don't like lignin and stuff like that. Worms will like persist on anything but people think what the black soldier flies leave behind is compost it really is. It, it's they call it frost it's a nice way of saying maggot poop so you take the frost and you feed that to your worms and you get really supercharged material so now you're growing soldier flies producing the soldier fly larva taking the frost producing worms and producing great compost super badass compost Right. So that then becomes your primary fertility input into what you're doing. Now you add the biochar to it. And I've taught the boy how to cut and size material, how to run the kiln. Right. We know we can put it through the um, leaf shredder. Now we know that the chipper shredder does work on biochar. As long as it's been quenched, you give it about two days to, to dry out. It'll still be very wet. It goes right through straight into the garbage can. No problem. Now you can put biochar in there, plus you have a biochar as a standalone product. That's a lot of product out. Now I have to start vegetables every year. If I can get the kids linked in on this, man, you know, there's no reason you can't start five times more than what you need. Plant what you want and sell the differential. And I I am trying to get them zeroed in and honed in on this. My granddaughter is learning how to, to, to clone mint plants. Uh, they're, they're away on vacation this week. Next week, I plan to, to, to take her and her brother out and see if they can get them excited. I'm going to teach them how to make mulberry from my, uh, my dwarf mulberry, uh, Mora, Mora is out al, Mora Alba Isai is the variety of mulberry. It clones like that and, uh, goji berries. And I want 50 of both and I'll pay them. I'll pay them a dollar a plant. If they take care of them till they're fully rooted and growing and ready to be transplanted, uh, and they can definitely make more selling them than that. But again, I'm a wholesale customer, right? So it can be multi-generational too. And I was talking to my wife about this and what I'm hoping in teaching them how to do this, isn't that it necessarily becomes a business they take full time as young adults. If it does great, I want to, I, I want my grandkids when they're 18 years old to understand how to, how to start a business. And not just from reading a book, like from actually doing it, understanding like cost analysis, how to market a product, how to set up a basic website, how to do basic online marketing, basic search engine optimization. Be able to look at products that you're selling and say, I shouldn't sell this one anymore. We sell some, but we don't make enough money on it. We don't need to sell this. Or, hey, this is a loss leader. We don't really make money on this, but this is why we sell the other things. The business I just laid out for you, if you can do it, you know what you want? <laughs> you want an egg business to go with it. And you want a pre- I don't care if it's chickens, ducks, quail, whatever, but you, you need to have a premium egg business. And what I mean by that is most people that ask you how much your eggs are go, but screw that. I'm going to Walmart. Bye, bitch. That needs to be, a, don't say it that way, but that needs to be what's in your head. Bye, bitch. I don't sell to you. And you say you're selling a premium egg product that you're never going to make a ton of money on, but then you have a recurring customer and then you can market into a recurring customer base. I want to teach my grandkids that. And I want to use my homestead to teach my grandkids that in a multi generational mindset. Right? So homesteading is about more than just the direct production. I'm cultivating entrepreneurs on my homestead, hopefully, because one thing I've learned about kids, you can get them interested, but you can't make them want so I'm not going to force it, but I am trying. And honestly, my six year old granddaughter is way more excited than my grandson, which surprises me. Uh, but generate income. You can put in, if you have a bigger piece of land, you know, if I had that big piece of land I talked about with all the woods on it, I would, I wouldn't clear it, but I'd put a few tiny houses, probably off grid on it and some glamping sites and I'd Airbnb or Vibro or hip camp or whatever that shit. Right. And again, money in the hand. Some of that stuff you can't make between you and the fence post, but you can do a lot of expense against income in that type of arrangement. And so I think we all need to become expert entrepreneurs. Now, I didn't say big entrepreneurs. I didn't say that we need to make our living as entrepreneurs. I said we need to be expert entrepreneurs. So my grandfather, in my opinion, was an expert entrepreneur. He never made enough money from entrepreneurship to pay all his bills. He made enough money from entrepreneurship they didn't give a shit about his bills. That's a different mindset. This is the I'm going back again to like the 1800s. Every small landholder planted a cash crop farm but usually had a job. And if it involved getting on a horse and riding in a town every day then that's what they did. But they also did other things. If they were a carpenter then that meant they knew how to do things, let's say like build wheels for carriages before we everybody had cars with rubber tires and they would sit in their barn in their time off you know which wasn't much but whatever they had with a spoke shave, making spokes and building wheels or whatever it was they did something with every resource they had and they were expert entrepreneurs again one can be an expert and not full-time in a thing if you have somebody who retires from a, a particular career, they're still an expert. So it's kind of the the, the the converse in that model. But I think we all need to be because the beauty of that is you start to look at things differently. It's, it's a switch that I can't make you make. But I walk around and go, I can monetize that. I can monetize that. I can monetize that. I can monetize that. And what you find is you get to a point where I only monetize the shit I like doing. But then you realize like if I ever need to, I can turn up that, I can turn up that, I can turn up that. Need an extra five hundred bucks this month. Instead of going to get a payday loan, I'm gonna turn this thing up, make myself five hundred bucks, and I'm done with that for now. That that like temporary side hustle model. That's part of this homesteading, and the homestead then becomes the base of operations for this type of thinking. Um you can also then use economy of scale with food storage. If you have a homestead, you can start putting in ways that you can store more food. Now we can buy more food or produce more food or convert more food to storable food and build up our food battery. And we should all be building up our food battery all the time. It is the one absolute constant guarantee that you are going to need. It's one of your five primary survival needs. Shelter. You know, if you have a homestead, you probably got sheltered. Then take care of it and maintain it. Water, if you don't have water, your problems will solve themselves in about three days when you die, right? Security, security is something you can live your whole life without and never need it or die because you didn't have it for one second. So you should see to that. But it is the thing that, you know, if you don't practice practice full Uh, situational awareness today, you'll probably make it because we live in a relatively civilized society for now. Anyway, health and sanitation, most of us have a solution to get rid of our waste. Maybe it's the most optimal, but we do, but I guarantee you, you're going to eat sometime in the next 24 hours, unless you're intentionally fasting. So there is no food that you would eat that you can store that you will not eventually use if you're rotating your storage. So we all need to be building that food battery. And it is amazing the difference in mindset when you have a good built up food battery than if you don't, when the whole COVID thing started, what did I say? This is all stupid. It's all bullshit. Don't be afraid of it. Go on with your life. But then when they started doing the lockdowns and they started, you know, like having things sell out and people were raiding the pantries and stuff like this is a major supply chain disruption. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. But part, and I've, I've worried for people but for me, I don't worry. For my son and my daughter-in-law and my grandkids who were worried, I'm like, well, come on, you guys. You're not the in-laws. <laughs> I'm not feeding the in-laws. I've told the in-laws for years to, 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 to do this for themselves. You're my kid and my grandkids and my kid's wife. You guys are good. We've got enough food. We're good for a year. And so there was no stress. There was, And that wasn't... That wasn't what we also could produce or acquire. That was what we had. And so I really encourage you to use a homestead as a way to make sure that you're using economy of scale and holistic food storage to make sure you have a good food battery. And at least 60 days and maybe not 60 days where you live like a king. But if you can go 60 days without leaving your house and no one's going to really starve, then you're going to get through just about anything that you can have happen. Because it gives you time to think and come up with solutions versus react. All those people that went out and cleared off the market shelves and everything that disappeared, there wasn't really a supply shortage. This is what you need to know about the whole two and a half years of this crap, and especially the first year where there was like a lot of bare shelves. and all. There was never a shortage of supply. There was an artificial shortage created by panic buying, a.k.a. hoarding. You know, they always say we're the hoarders, preppers. We're not the hoarders. We buy surplus when surplus is available, so we don't need to hoard when there is a shortage. Yeah? You went into the grocery stores a month into this, and you go where the beans were, and they're like the dry beans, completely cleared off. Most of the people that bought that shit didn't even know how to cook it. I'm telling you right now, I was watching people do it in their masks, all scared, looking around, putting bags of beans. And I'm, I'm looking at this person, going, this person doesn't know how to do a, 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 a dry bean. They have no idea what to do with a dry bean. Pasta, et cetera, just cleaned it out, all freaking out. So much better off to just be like, I'm kind of here to watch the weirdos freak out. So it's up to you what you want to do, but definitely you want to make sure that you are building up the food battery. Uh, The other thing is you develop the skill sets and then your homestead again is your base of operations for converting food into storable food. So if you're going to garden, you are probably maybe not in your first year, but soon into it, you're going to start producing more than you can use as it comes in. So learning about things like blanching and flash freezing, dehydration, freeze drying, if you want to go that way, canning, et cetera, like these are lacto-fermentation. It's all skill sets to add that leverage what you already have in the homestead. And then you want to think about energy efficiency. Because it is way easier to start out with a retro. If you're building from the ground up and you do straw bale or insulated structural or whatever it is you're going to do, um, that's fine. But most people are going to buy an existing structure and retrofitting can be really complex and really expensive. The first thing you should do before you think about putting a solar panel on the roof or a windmill up or anything like that is improve the efficiency, increased installation, finding all the leaks in the windows and stuff like that. Because then anything you do as to alternative energy production is magnified in its effect. Yeah. So, If you look at a house and it's leaking, let's say, $600 a year in electricity costs due to poor insulation and other bad design features, and you fix that and you reduce the outflow on the electric bill by $600 a year, it is net the exact same. And this is hard for people to get into the head. It's net the exact same is creating a $50 a month annuity of money in. It nets the same, because if the money's not going out, you have it. Now, most people, once they do this, will mindlessly spend the surplus. So as you create surpluses, those surpluses need to be walled off. A former hopeful president that never made it, Al Gore would say, you need a lockbox. Anybody here, anybody here in the comments old enough to remember the lockbox where was going to put social security in the lockbox, which, you know, never really addressed the actual problem. I just wonder how many of you remember the lockbox, right? What we need is a lockbox. So you need to like create your own lockbox for these surpluses you generate. So once you figure out, I cut my electric bill by about 50 bucks a year, open up a bank account or get a jar and convert it to cash or do whatever you want and take that amount of money and just stick it in that hole. I'm not saying you can't spend it. I'm not saying you can't piss it away if you want to. I'm just saying be cognizant and aware of it. Make it real. Make it real. And then, you know, if you don't need to spend it this month, don't. And you don't need to spend it because you wouldn't have had it if you didn't create the sufficiency. And electrical or energy is only one way you would do that. Any way you create a surplus of cash beyond what you have, once your base budget is met, put it in a different hole, a different lockbox, and look at it. And every time you think about spending it, just simply ask yourself, am I willing to sacrifice what I did to get it for the thing I'm going to spend it on? And I won't judge you. I don't give a shit what you spend it on. just want you to look at it. There are times to teach lessons with our grandchildren that they get fined. They get fined. Now they also get allowances. Okay. We don't do it this way. So let's say that Braylon this week was going to earn $12 this week and he got fined four. So we pay him eight. Uh, uh-uh, uh, no. That's not how the real world works. It's not generally your, unless you work, you play in NBA or NFL or something like that. It's not generally your employer that finds you, right? Like you get a speeding ticket. You get your paycheck, and you have to take the money out of your bank account and write a check to the, the John Law for your speeding ticket. Yeah? So we make them receive the money and give it back. You worked for this. You earned this. And now you lost it. I won't tell you where the money actually goes, but it's just a way to drive home the cost and consequence, right? And also that there's a real cost to the world and energy is part of the cost. And so that's another way to come at this, but definitely that energy efficiency, energy production, anything you can do to generate a surplus, walling off the surplus long enough to realize the gain. So that if you choose to spend it, you think about it before you do, because this is, this is the reality for America most Americans do get raises on a semi-regular basis. Most Americans, the day they get the raise, feel pretty good about it. Three weeks later, they look around and they go, I don't know. Say anything any different. You can say whatever you want about inflation. And it has been far worse for the Brandon years than it has been prior. And I don't think Brandon honestly gets all the blame. I think Yellen and, J. Powell and Trump, honestly, everybody gets plenty of blame in this, but it has been worse. But you know, if you go back to like the the, the two early two thousands, mid two thousands, early teens, inflation was pretty tame compared to those raises, especially across like sixty days. So if you got a raise and sixty days later you didn't have a dime more in your average balance, you just spent it without thinking about it. And this happens all the time. People make more or they cut expense and they just on on indiscretion spending or discretionary spending, they just spend it without any discretionary spending is done with no discretion, I guess is the way to put it. Yeah. So you, you have to realize the game because then you'll get into the, the mindset from richest man in Babylon, where once I have the gold, it becomes my slave and I need to put it to work. So if I'm going to spend it, what do I get? Now, there's you know, there's non-discretionary spending that somebody might see as discretionary. I'm talking to you on a rather new laptop right now, MacBook. I bought it in November last year. I didn't want to buy one. I needed one. I had to do it. It's part of the business. That's an investment. It will make me more than I spent on it, even though I didn't like spending it. But most people spend their money on shit that doesn't do anything for them. So if you're going to then you start actually being a little bit more judicious with understanding what projects you want to do. I have the surplus money. I want to put this thing on my homestead. But when you feel that, hey, I made this surplus, what am I going to get? And we tend to do less, not more as far as building things. And we be more we're more selective. And we at least if even if we do the same amount, we end up making a different decision. We make a decision to do the things that are most productive and highest ROI first versus the sexy things that we want to do because it seems fun and exciting first. Yeah. So definitely start thinking about creating that battery of not just food, but that battery of economics and then at least looking at it for a little bit before we squander it. Next, learn local foraging. And I would put foraging, hunting, fishing, all in this category. I'll bet you most of you that think, man, there's there's no real good fishing around me. There's some little pond somewhere that you could go into your worm bin, dig through it, throw a dozen or two dozen worms in a can, throw some dirt in there with them, put the lid on it, put it in a little lunchbox cooler take a couple little push button reels and come home with a creel full of bluegills or bullheads or something like that. How many times a year do you have to do that to make a dent in the food bill? What's your cost in that? What's your cost? Let's say you have to buy a hundred dollars worth of gear. Okay. It's a hundred dollars plus zero and whatever the gas is to get where you would probably go screw off somewhere else if you weren't there. So the gas is in net zero to and so if you can put a couple, three, four pounds of fish in the larder every time you do that, it starts to make an impact pretty quick. Again, think like those extra, expert entrepreneurs that were our grandfathers and our great uncles and stuff like that. So part of being an expert entrepreneur was when I and my great uncle Pete came upon this massive surplus of those Ramshead mushrooms. My inclination was, man, I'll take my share home to grandma, you'll take your share home to Aunt Millie, uh, maybe we'll give a little bit away. We can't ever use all of this. And if if somebody was gonna say, well, you should have told other people that you don't give away, okay? Hey, let me tell you something this. Ramshead mushrooms grow back in the same location every year. They grow at the base of certain trees, specifically certain oaks and some other things. You don't tell people where your hole is that you get your ram's head from because the word will spread. And earlier and earlier in the season, people will take them younger So you don't tell anybody. So my thought was just leave it. He said, no, I got this. And we took trip after trip. And I mean, we literally full size Chevy pickup filled it. Cause he knew exactly what we were going to do. He's like, we have, we have, this is a monetary win. And my uncle Pete, who was so tight, he was so tight, he could squeeze two nickels together tight enough to turn them into a dime. Okay. Right. That's how tight it, he split that money with me because I did have to work. I, I believe that was done as a lesson too. Cause he could have given me 10% and I would have been happy. But we walked away with a pocket full of cash each because we knew what to do with what we found that that was, but that was local forging. So you start to see function stacking different, right? And I look at it today and go, man, there's so many things I could have dug up out of the woods and planted and cloned plants out of and sold. Like I didn't even understand the opportunity that was ahead of me right there. In the end though, it's really about how you think more than what you do. If you take people that think the way that I'm talking about today, and you took 10 people and you showed them a potential homestead. It was all the same one, a certain amount of land, some outbuildings, et cetera, and said, if I dropped you off here, you didn't have a job. You have to make a go of it from what you have here. What would you do? Odds are all 10 would have similarities and differences, and none of the 10 would have the exact same plan. One might say, look, this building's great. There's some power tools here. I could add a few more things. I could start building cabinets. Cabinets are expensive. I only need to do two jobs a month, two custom cabinet jobs a month, and I'm good. Well, that person might have that skill set. So that might be their mindset. Another person might go, this house is crap. I want to put a cabin in, and I don't really want to do a cabin. I want to do more like, like timber frame, and I'm going to need board. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to invest in a badass mill, and I'm going to mill my own lumber, and then my income is going to be that I'm going to mill lumber for other people. And another one might look at it and go, "Gee, look at this man. That outbuilding's perfect for cultivation of insects, like." like soldier fly and vermicomposting. And that is a market garden, And you get 10 totally different lifestyle designs and a lifestyle design wrapped inside of we'd call a permaculture design or a homestead design. See, and this is what most people get wrong about designing a homestead or doing a permaculture design of a homestead or regenerative agriculture design or whatever it is. You design not the land and the housing, you design the lifestyle by designing the property, the housing, etc. You first figure out, like I said, when I talked about this this week, right, design element zero is the, the client, the people that will live there, that will do the work, that will eat the food, that will reap the rewards, that have to provide the labor where it's required. So if we start from that mindset, the way that we design a a property starts out with, I'm designing the property to match the lifestyle. And that's just a totally different way to think about things. You have to ask yourself again, when you listen to this podcast and you hear me saying this, I'm not the only one saying this stuff, but I'm pretty typical of the person saying it. You know, maybe not everybody would call themselves a redneck hippie duck farmer like I do. But I mean, you don't have school teachers teaching this elementary, high school or university. You don't have them. No, anybody explaining things this way. It's all being done by people that actually are living what they're teaching, which is the complete opposite of having a person teaching business at business school, at a college that's never run a fricking business in their life, isn't it? And so why this, this is everything I'm telling you today is the root of American culture. This is the root of American culture. This is what this country was built on. This is what made us such an amazing place. This even they got fierce, independent spirit. Fierce independent spirit isn't getting outraged at the outrage of the day, posting some shit and yelling and screaming. That's not a fierce independent system Fierce or, 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 or uh, fierce independent uh, uh, people. A fierce independent person simply says, I see all your crazy shit. I'm living my freaking way. My way anyway goes screw." That's what the people in power fear. That's what they don't want. If you're going to have to eat the bugs, own nothing, and be happy because you're happy with what you get, you can't have a fierce independent spirit. You can't be a person that's like, you know what, screw this. I'm just going to make some money out of that, 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 and that. And then, I'll. well, that's not going to be enough for the whole year. Yeah, but I'll figure – I've got that shit to do. By doing that, I'll build a customer base, and I'll meet people, and I'll find other opportunities, and I'll figure that shit out when I get to it because I'm going to live my life my way. If you don't like it, go screw off. Go shove a cheese grater in your ass. I don't care what you do, but don't tell me how to live. That's a fierce independent spirit. When you can tell somebody who's telling you what you have to do, go screw, shove a cheese grater in your ass, now you have a fierce independent spirit, especially when you mean it. When you're willing to say, here's a cheese grater, take this and shove it where the shun don't sign, and you mean it because you don't need them. That's what built this country. That's what made people come to this country build a shitty little shack on the outskirts of town, work their ass off for two or three years, burn the freaking shack down, pick the nails out of the ashes, put them in a sack, get on a horse with a carriage and go West and start up a farm and take those nails with them because they were that valuable to them. That's what did that. Not being outraged, not picking one side over the other, but deciding the side I'm worried about is me. I'm worried about my side. Well, that's selfish. No. No. I put my mask on, then I help my passenger next to me in the plane. So I'm going to go out and live my life my way. It's for community, people that live their life their way, unless they're total hermits, they end up with community. Because people are like, I like what that dude's doing. That that old man, Spirico, he seems all right. I don't care if they say he's crazy. I don't care if he has a podcast. He just seems like he's all right. He seems pretty happy. Seems like a pretty good dude to know. And then you build community off of that. Like I said, my grandparents, if you would have said we need to build community, what are you talking about? Go to church. Go down to a block party. Go down to VFW. There's community everywhere. What the hell are you talking about? Did you get those bags up to the catchmers yet with the food in it? What's wrong with you? Community, what are you talking about? I can use some community with my foot in your ass. Get moving, boy. Cause it wouldn't have made any sense to them that you needed to build community. You built community by being independent. And I'll tell you why. This is something else I said very early in the show that resonated with people. Sharing can only occur between equals. I'll say that again. Sharing can only occur between equals. And what I don't mean is like you have to be on the absolute same level in every part of society. You know, you have the same income, the same size house. I don't mean that. Right. What I mean is that you have to be equal as beings. You can't be divided into camps and then call it sharing. We'll tax the rich, not sharing, stealing. When I look at you and you look at me and we see each other as equals, even if I have more of something and you have more of something else, And those aren't the things we're trading. We're actually sharing. I'm like, hey, I have a shitload of stuff from my garden. You don't have a garden here. Not somebody comes over and goes, give up your surplus, man. I'm like, I just literally need to give this to you. That's sharing. And then whatever you give me back, it may be in some form of emotional reciprocity. But unless it's actually a trade, it's a share back. And it occurs naturally. And often in organic communities that coalesce around themselves, I give you a thing, you give somebody else a thing, and I don't worry about the scales balancing. We have commerce, and we have community sharing, community commerce and community sharing, and they're different. I don't need to sell everything. I know that this family is getting older, they don't have a lot, they're living on freaking Social Security, and we have all this excess, I'm not going to charge them for it here. And I might take some of that same surplus down the farmer's market and sell it. Right? And if I need to grow a little more for that person, I will because they're my neighbor and I care about them. But that's independent. Who, who made me do it? Who made me take that approach? No one makes me take that approach. You can't make somebody do that. It doesn't work. They tried stuff like that in communist, it failed miserably, collapsed under their own weight when they tried to do it that way. So they do it with money. Go to work for the man, get in the gerbil wheel and spin it like the rat that we see you as. And as much energy comes out of there, we'll just take a share. And guess where you are? You're right back being a sharecropper in the feudal system in Europe in the 16 freaking hundreds. That's all you're doing in the modern world if you don't add things like we're talking about today and other things to it. Oh, sharecropper, man. It was so hard Dude worked his ass off in the fields all day long. And the Lord of the land who charged him rent for the land also took half of his crops. And he had to subsist on the other half, what he could eat and what he could sell. It was so terrible. Dude, let me introduce you to 2023. You go to work, you work all day for an asshole who doesn't like you. At a job you don't want, sitting behind a desk, getting fatter and fatter. And the government takes half of everything you earn. Before you even start paying your bills and they tax everything that you do and you end up with about 25 to 30 percent of your actual efforts that you get to keep and you have to spend those to subsist. You're right back where we were 300 years ago, but you falsely believe yourself to be free. And the most dangerous thing there is to that system of order is someone that says, I don't think so. I'm not going to do it that way. You want me to pay a lot of taxes? I'm going to start a business and move a whole bunch of my shit from the necessities column to the expense column. I'm going to roast so much of my own food that I don't need as much income and you can tax me at that poor person level. Because by the time I get done with expenses and not buying shit, I'll be there. You want me to send my kids or my grandkids to your school so they can be trained to be a rat in a wheel? I'm not gonna do that. No, you can go screw. I'm gonna my kids, my grandkids, right, by the time they're 18 are gonna be able to explain to you what a balance sheet is and how A equals L plus C. I might be a redneck duck farmer, but I also have a background in accounting and finance. My grandkids are going to be able to tell you what ARPU means, and many of you, unless you've heard me say it before, have no idea what that, that an acronym means, right? They're going to know what that means. They're going to know how to look at a product and say, this is not worth selling, even though we sell a lot of it, because it does make us enough money. Now, you don't want that. See, what they want is about 10% of society thinking this way, because they're the house slaves That's the house slave. That's a slave that has it pretty good. You look after the other slaves, you get a little bit more freedom, you get a little bit more money, instead of a shack, you get the back room, you live in the house, not out in the dirt, right? You have it a little bit better. That's what they want. And then you have your oligarchy at the very top, 1%, 10% house slaves, everybody else some level of shit where their surplus is taken or they're used as an excuse to take surplus. So they either want you working your ass off and taking half of what you have or doing nothing, being a drain on the people working their ass off because they don't need all of the part they take from you. Those other people make the money too. We won't get that in today. But when you separated the American from the mindset of homesteading, that's when all this became easily doable, easily doable. Because like what's going to happen to the poor people? Even in the 1980s, if you had said that in Minersville, they would have said, everybody here is poor. And you don't help. You don't help. We all take care of each other. Get out of here. Now was like, oh, yeah, the poor people. Roads and schools and poor people. We need taxes for a civilized society. Well, they take your money and blow some kid up across the ocean with it. It might sound ridiculous, but this is how we put a stop to it. We don't just use our homestead to grow food. We grow the next generation into a different mindset. And we do it every day a little at a time, like eating an elephant. Can't do it all at once. And it's the same spirit that drove the original settlers. And I do believe it's still alive today. It really is. Think about what it took to get a person that had enough money. And we're talking about the debtor prisoner that was sent to Georgia debtors colony or something, but a lot of people that, you know, if you wanted to get from Europe to here, you didn't just like thumb a ride on a boat. You had to pay for your passage. You know, maybe you could if you're a single guy, maybe you could work as a hand or something and get across. But most of the people that did it came up, you know, came across as families and things in the early days. They probably had something at home and they wanted more. And what they really wanted was out from under the thumb. I want my own thing. They lived under monarchy and feudal order. And there was this place called America where there was no king. Even when it was still colonies, the king was busy over here and we'll throw his freaking tea in the water and have a revolution over a 3% tax. That mindset is like, I will own something of my own. And that person became an expert in 100 subjects or they died. To be blunt, and even some of them became experts because of diseases and stuff back then died. But when you went out and cleared 40 acres with a saw and an axe, built a house and started farming or whatever it is you did, you either became an expert at a whole bunch of shit or you died and your kids became experts at a whole bunch of shit. And we corporatized the whole damn place over the last hundred years but the spirit's still here. Do you have it? If so, what are you going to do with it? The modern homestead is really about, it's as simple as changing the mindset from this is a thing that consumes my income and my time and gives me very little in return other than I have to have a house to something that's not just, Hey, I'm laying up equity in it. That's an asset. It provides me food, shelter, Recreation, happiness, protection, safety, security, enjoyment in a place to help raise the next generation and the one after that. And if we're really lucky, some of us will get to have some part in doing that with great grandchildren someday. Home to homestead. Do you have a house or do you have a homestead? The difference is mindset and what you choose to do with it. Hope you guys enjoyed that. I did star a few things today. It's a little bit difficult to do when I'm alone, but let me just go through and see what I have. Uh, Space Girl, we pay $345 yearly in property tax for 160 acres. Someone zoned agricultural. Good for you. That's something you can definitely look at, With and that might be something when you're looking at land. Let me add to that. That you really want to get more land than you think you need for, For instance, in Texas, to get the ag exemption, we have to have at least five acres. And I had a gentleman on a bit ago, the guy with the bees and all. And one of the things I've learned from him, and I didn't know this, is that you can do ag exemption in Texas anyway with wildlife habitat management. So you can get a lot of wooded acres. You don't have to cut it down and grow hay. Look into the programs that are available and wildlife management would just mean making your hunting really, really good. Builder of Castle says with the banking collapse coming, what is the benefit disadvantage of paying off a mortgage? Many banks will be calling in loans or other shenanigans. I'm going to tell you right now, this idea that banks are going to call in loans is not going to happen. No, because that will result in in Congress clowns dangling by their feet from lampposts in D.C., So this idea that, you know, banks are going to be like, hey, hey, you owe me all the money on the mortgage right now or we're foreclosed. That's that's just of all the things you have to worry about. That's not one to worry about. The bank collapse thing, whoever holds your mortgage, when it collapses, a bigger bank will end up. You're going to end up with four to six banks controlling everything. This should make no difference. On your choice to be a homesteader or to buy a house or to maintain your house. Now paying off a mortgage. If you had the money to pay off the mortgage and the banks did call in the mortgage, you'd still have the money to pay off the mortgage to save the money because then you have both the property that you can service the debt easily on and the capital to cover if that ever happened. If you pay it off, right? and capital becomes what's hard to get your hands on, and you can't re-leverage into the mortgage to extract the capital out of the equity because times are tough or maybe your income's not there, then you're stuck. So I'm not saying not to pay the property off. I'm saying this is not a factor in what you decide to do. Again, I look at it, The I probably owe... 25% of the value of the property right now because of what I paid for it, the fact that we pay a little bit extra here and there, um, how long I've held the property and how much it's appreciated and how much we went in down with. I probably owe about 25% and have about 75% equity. If my property value drops in half, I'm still sitting on, what, 50% equity. I'm not worried about that. And I would rather have the capital then be 100% capitalized into the property based on the debt that I already have. Now, the other side of this, let's say we get hyperinflation is a word I hate. I've talked about it many times as to why I don't like the term, be, the way it's used around, because I believe that definitions matter. They have a meaning. And if you say a thing, then you should be meaning what the thing is. So hyperinflation is 50% inflation by month for six months or cumulative annual inflation exceeding a thousand percent. Either or would fall under a textbook definition of hyperinflation. I don't think we're going to hyperinflate, but let's say we go into a major inflation. If we go into major inflation, then the people like me are sitting pretty. We could pay off our balance due for next to nothing. And our cost of servicing the debt is ridiculously low. So, I, I, that won't change my position at all, and I don't think it should yours either. K-Bonk is asking about black soldier flies. I already answered that one and st- forgot to unstar it. Ecomouse says, um, was white. Add Jack for isolated raised bed, two by eight. Do I dress over last year's soil roots and remove, replace last year's growth, chop and drop and top or what? Thanks. Whatever you want. What I do most years is I put down a cover crop and then, and I don't, this is before I chop any remaining standing. I throw down a cover crop. I throw down a new layer of compost for the year. I drop and then I'll thin scatter mulch on top of that and water that in and let that cover crop grow right up through the chop and drop and I leave all the roots in the ground. That's what I usually do. What I did this year, because I just didn't want, I didn't want the maintenance of a garden through the winter. And I had a feeling I was wrong, but I had a feeling we were going to get another hard winter here where the cover crop would mostly be froze down. And I didn't want that to happen. So all I did this year was I laid down the layer of compost and I put weed block down and just suffocated all the weed action the winter. either any of these, these techniques work. What I would never do is what my grandfather used to do, which was basically nothing. So, at the end of the season, if it was easy to pull up, we'd pull it up and throw it on the ground. If it wasn't easy to pull up, we'd cut it off, leave the roots in the ground, and throw it on the bed. And then he did nothing. And so, all the grass and weeds infiltrated. And even though you got snow cover in winter and all, grass is pretty hardy stuff. Clover is pretty hardy stuff. It grows and starts crawling in long before you're really ready to plant. So it was a complete new re-dig every season. And I believe the reason my grandfather did that is he believed no matter what, we were, that was his version of tilling. Like our neighbor across the street had one of the little hand-push rototillers back at the time, and he rototilled. And my grandfather knew that rototilling was bad. He had worked out that it compacts the underpan. So if you rototill and your rototiller goes down four inches, that top four inches of soil is super loose. But right below it, where those blades don't dig into, it compacts the soil and creates hardpan. And then if you get a heavy spring rain, your beds look like little ponds. Especially if you have a significant amount of clay in your soil, they do. So he had worked out that that was bad and the shovel was cheaper than a rototiller and it didn't have a gas motor and you got a teenager to run it. So here's a shovel boy get to work. But in his mind, that dirt needed to be turned every year. So what did it matter if the grass and the weeds and his thought was you turn it over, you kill it all and you're giving it back to the soil and it worked for what it was. But I would never do that today because I remember how much work went into it. And there's, there's no real need for it. So I would do anything that allows me not to till. And maybe I should do a show on no-till gardening soon because I get a lot of questions on this. And I think people are making it way harder than it is. Uh, and also I think maybe they're afraid to do some things that they could do. Like, well, if I'm putting down biochar, how to get the soil without tilling? Uh, it'll get itself in there. When you plant, you put material in the hole, spread it with compost, mulch over it, broad fork. Rod fork looks like a big pitchfork goes in and you kind of rock it back and forth. You loosen the soil, but you don't actually till it. Maybe you till it once to get started. Like there's all types of ways, but annual tillager turnover is not something that I want to be doing ever again because of how much work it was. So I think you develop the system that works for you, Eka Mouse. Uh, Gouley says I used to work in Coal Township, PA, so different than South Central Pennsylvania. So, Cole Township, I'm not sure where exactly that is, Ghoulie. I'm I'm from a place called Minersville, and I went to Pottsville High School and basically lied about my address so I could go to Pottsville High School because it was so much better of a school to go to than Minersville. Um, but that's in Schuylkill County, so I'm not sure where Cole Township is unless you mean it generically. Um, but it is different, definitely different than, like, South Central, I don't know a ton about, but like Southeast, like Lebanon, Pottstown, get over all the way east to like Philly and all is very, very different. Kind of upstate, central, northern, western, that whole area out by Pittsburgh. There's a lot of similarities through that whole region, and it's a beautiful part of the world. It's it's definitely worth uh, visiting if you ever get the chance uh, I haven't been back in a long time, but I may be making a uh, an effort to go there. Real quick, couple more things before we go. Renegade Butcher says 3% tax is 3% theft. It is, but uh, there is pragmatism. And we're, we're, if, you, if the thief broke in your house and got 3% of your stuff, you'd be pissed, but you'd be a lot more pissed if he got 50% of your stuff, especially if he was coming back every year to do it again, which is kind of the kind of government that we have now. With that, uh, guys, I really appreciate you tuning in today. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. If you did, one of the things you can do to help support us is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is Lifeguard, and it's spelled L-I-F-E-G-A-R-D, Aquatics, it's all one word, Lifeguard, Aquatics, uh, threaded bulkheads. And in the write-up, I actually talk about the fact that I changed the write-up because I found out that this company makes slip bulkheads. So if that's not clear enough, the difference is a threaded bulkhead, the inside of the bulkhead, not the part where it screws together and and and, and, and closes a hole up so you can move water through a thing. And I guess for people that aren't looking at the video, if you've never heard the term bulkhead before, a bulkhead is something that we use. Let's say we have a water tank. We want water to come out of it. But we don't want it to leak. And we want to control it. It's what you put in the penetration, and it seals off, and it lets water pass through when you decide or how you decide it's going to. So the threaded ones, you need an extra PVC fitting, and then it screws inside. The slip ones, you just take the proper size PVC and slip it inside. So I've gone to the slips because they cost about the same, and they eliminate a part. Um, but these guys are so much less expensive than a lot of the other products that are online. Yesterday, somebody emailed me about bulkheads and I pulled up this very listing that I have on the screen right now. And I looked, I said, God, the price has gone up on everything like it has, especially in construction stuff. And um, I was like, man, maybe they're not a great deal anymore. And I looked up, like, um, I can't think of the other brand now that I recommend, but I looked those guys up uh, Banjo. Banjo, and I looked up the banjo fittings, and they're like five, six dollars a piece more uh, than these are now. So, if you look at a project with like 10 bulkheads in it, that's 50 bucks. And we just talked about putting money back in your pocket, right? So, I definitely recommend you check these out. And the reason I brought them around today, one, it reminded me when I got that email asking me what to buy yesterday. But then I started thinking, like, it's social media and uh, Discord and every or uh, Telegram and what have you. I've seen a lot of wicking beds, aquaponics, aquatics, ponds with return systems, like tons of stuff going in. And I'm like, man, I haven't brought these around in a while. And it's definitely a cost saving thing to do. And I would also tell you this might be a product right now that you'll do better on not buying it through T-SPAS. If you're going to order it online, definitely go through T-SPAS. But check like plumbing supply, ag supply around you. Because this is a product that sometimes will swing way up online and be much less expensive locally uh, if, you, if you check them out that way. So uh, six and one, half dozen the other, but always save the money that you can. I appreciate everybody that shops through my website, shops through tspaz.com, goes to the Survival Podcast, buys things that I recommend. But if you can do better somewhere else, go do it. It won't, you know, it won't change the temperature of the water in my pool. I'll be okay, but I really appreciate it. If you're going to shop online, you start at tspaz.com. Also consider becoming a member of the MSB. That is the Members Support Brigade. If you become a member of the MSB, you'll help support our show no matter what. I'm sorry. You'll help support our show at about 20 cents an episode. And you can do that uh, simply by going to the thesurvivalpodcast.com and clicking on the Members tab right up at the top. It'll bring you this page. It'll tell you about some of the discounts. I really need to update this. It has a few older people on it that we don't have anymore and some new ones we haven't added, but you get all of this stuff. All you gotta do, click the link below and you can sign up We take debit and credit, check by mail if anybody wants to. that. silver by mail, which almost nobody does anymore. And of course we take Bitcoin and other crypto. Uh, if you wanna become a member today, you can do that. Please consider becoming a member. It really is the number one way that we pay the bills. It's how it's how I was able to take the show full time. And it really does pay for itself. I have not yet heard from somebody who said, Jack, I became a member and I actually tried using the discounts and I couldn't get my money back. That's never happened. So if you have something you can do that supports something you enjoy, that puts the money back in your pocket, plus you make a profit probably worth doing. Dennis Allen says, I always try to buy via TSPAS. Thank you for that. I appreciate every one of ch- every one of you that do. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I hope that it helps to rekindle in you the real fierce, independent spirit that made America what it is. Fierce, independent spirit. Fierce, independent spirit, again, it's not just having a big mouth. It's not just being, you know, dedicated to the things that you say you believe. It's being able to back it up. It's being able to do something about it. It's being able to say, go screw, and actually mean it when times get tough. And a great way to do that is to build a strong, independent homestead. And you do that by going from home to homestead, from consumer to producer. I'll catch you guys tomorrow with another episode. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around?